This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. You're listening to the Fish Untamed podcast, your home for fly fishing in the backcountry. All right, welcome to episode number 42 of the Fish Untamed podcast. Today was a super fun chat with Bart Lombardo of Panfish on the Fly, uh, which many of you are probably familiar with if you're like me and uh, love getting after those bluegills, crappies, uh, other warm water species during the summer. But Bart just has an absolute passion for these fish, as you'll hear in our conversation. Um, this episode covers everything from the different types of panfish to gear, fly selection, different seasons, uh, basically everything you might want to know if you're chasing these fish. So uh, we can hop right over to it. Here is my chat with Bart Lombardo. Well, uh, why don't we just start with a little introduction? Uh, maybe tell me how you got into uh, fly fishing and then specifically uh, your passion for, for panfish. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. Um, I've been fly fishing now for, uh, God, I, th- I think it's it's definitely over 40 years, maybe creeping up on 45. I probably first picked up a fly rod when I was about uh, 12 years old. And of course, the very first fish that I ever hooked on a, on a fly rod was undoubtedly a sunfish of some sort, most likely a bluegill. And the very first fish I ever caught, I know for a fact, was a bluegill when I was maybe three, four years old. And that was on, you know, on the, a bobber and a worm, the way everybody else starts. But I really got turned on to the fly fishing when I was in my late teens, early 20s. And uh, once I started with the fly rod, I, I pretty much stayed in that direction. And, uh, you know, fishing it almost exclusively for you know, 25, 30 years. And just, just recently in the last maybe five years or so, um, you know, have I ever even picked up a, a spinning rod or a bait casting rod? 
but there was a lot of years that all I fished with was uh, a fly rod. So definitely been seriously fly fishing since I was you know 17 or 18 years old, and I'm just turned 57. So that's that's a lot of years. And so, uh, what got you into it? Was it you know your dad or another family member that well, got you into it? Not really. I mean, I came, I kind of grew up in a, a city environment, but I okay. did have uh, a grandfather that had, uh, you know, had the cabin in the woods and, and that's where I uh, spent a, a good portion of my summers every year. And that is what really fostered my interest in the outdoors, uh, in you know, just the outdoors in general and hunting and fishing. And I've always been a fishing nut, even since I was, uh, you know, a little kid. And uh, so the interest in fly fishing was just kind of self-generated, actually. I've always had the interest in fishing. And, you know, as a, as a young man reading all these uh, outdoor magazines of the day, you know, fly fishing just had this allure to it. And uh, it always attracted me. And when I first got into it, um, 100% self-taught. So the learning curve was very long. I mean, it was uh, very long. And, you know, nowadays there's so many, so many resources out there for a beginning angler that, um, you know, you can really get into this a lot quicker than, than I did. Yeah, I know a lot of people used to get into it, you know, via text. And I just can't imagine learning to fly cast via, you know, a book or something like that and, versus even and a that's video. that's exactly <laughs> what it was. And the books were, were dated. You know, they weren't like, and, I, you know, I go back, we talked about fly fishing and, I actually, oh, I thought I had a copy of the book on my desk here. Um, but one of my first fly fishing books was the the line drawings. I would love to hold up a picture of the book just to show you what these line drawings were like. And then you had to create a fly from from these drawings. Hold on <laughs> one second. I'm going to step. I see the book in the back here. I'm going to yeah, step no away and I'm going to come right back. So this book has been around for, you know, since I was a kid. And um, this is a, a warm water fly fishing book, actually. It's uh, Fly Tying and Fly Fishing for Bass by Tom Nixon. And when you look at some of these drawings that were in here, you know, this is what you had to work with. Oh, man. You know? Yeah. It's like the equivalent of a, <laughs> of a stick figure person, but but exactly. not with fly fishing. Exactly. <laughs> and, and nowadays we have YouTube. So um, you go from these these very simple, basic line drawings to a uh, just these incredibly produced YouTube videos that show every detail. And, it, you know, the we have some very, very talented tires out there that explain every step of the process. And, you know, I've been fly tying for almost as long as I've been fly fishing. And that was a very long learning curve, too. And now I see uh, folks just getting into it. And, you know, they're tying better than me with, you know, 12 months, two years experience, <laughs> you know. So it's, it's fantastic to see. You know, I got to say, though, I feel like fly tying still has a, or, or print print uh, media still has a big place in fly tying, in my opinion. Um, I'm still I, what I would consider relatively new to it. You know, I, I know the basics and everything, but I'm by no means a, an expert fly tire. But I feel like having all the pictures right in front of you without having to take a YouTube video back, you know, keep returning it back one minute in the past to see what happened. I actually really like having the book in front of me um, to follow a picture so I can have them there in front of me permanently instead of having to scroll back and forth in the video. Uh, so I think video is best for fly casting, but I think... Uh, It'll it'll take a lot to to kill off the books for fly tying. 
I, I agree with you. I, I like the books as well, um, especially the books that have been produced in the last 15, 20 years. You know, once, yeah, yeah, once books sure. started producing a lot of, you know, high quality uh, color photographs and the, the authors actually took the time to document every step of the tying process, it made it a lot easier to, uh, you know, to understand what was going on. You know, and I apologize to the listeners here. We're talking about a book that I'm showing you a picture of. And they have no idea what I'm talking about. But, you know, you may have a an entire description of a fly that has multiple steps that were explained in, in four very simple line drawings, you know, and you had to make heads or tails of, you know, you knew what the end result was supposed to be look like, and you had to figure out how to get there on your own. And, and sometimes it just never happened. Oh yeah. There's a big difference between a, a black and white line drawing of fly tying and a, and a high quality, high resolution uh, uh, image, color image of, of fly tying for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So kind of got off the track there. Um, you know, the interest in panfish, how did that come about? Well, you know, there's always been an interest in these fish um, just because they're accessible. I I do a lot of fishing for other species. I'm a very avid, uh, you know, trout and salmon angler and um, spend a lot of time trout fishing. And my nearest trout stream is, it's at least an hour and 15 minutes from my house, from my front door. Uh, so where are you located? I'm actually located in uh, central New Jersey. So we, we do have, uh, believe it or not, we have some some very good trout water in the state. And uh, the closest of that water is about an hour and 15 minutes away from me. But I can literally be um, walking the shorelines of a you know, local farm pond or floating in my kayak. Or you can see behind me there, there's a float tube. Yeah, I noticed up that. The wall. <laughs> um, literally five minutes from my front door. So, you know, for me, trout fishing is an all-day uh, experience. I, you know, you have to plan to free up that time for an entire day. And where panfish and, you know, some of the warm water species, they're just available. They're, they're minutes away from the front door. So I could either, you know, sneak out the door after dinner and catch that last hour or two before it gets dark um, and still be home to spend some time with family. Where if I'm going trout fishing, I got a you know two and a half hour commute, and it, if you want to spend you're going to travel that much time, so you want to spend some time on the water, it, it ends up being a, a big commitment of time. Where where panfish is not, it's very accessible, and you know, I can fish as often as I want. Yeah, and I feel like what you're saying is is really. Um applicable across the board. You know, there's some people who you can go out for an hour and, and catch trout. I can get to trout within 10 minutes of my house, but I feel like that's not necessarily the norm. There's a lot of people who it is a full day trip or even a full, you know, long weekend to get to, to good trout fishing, whereas almost everybody is within, you know, probably a 20 minute drive of, of a good bluegill pond or a bass pond or something. And and that is absolutely the truth. When you think about it, there's, there's a lot more states without trout than with. And um, for, for many anglers, fly fishing becomes something they do twice a year when they go on vacation, you know, and they're not, they're not fishing throughout the rest of the year because they have the impression that, well, you fly fish for trout or you fly fish for, for bonefish or for salmon or what steelhead, whatever the case may be. And yet there's quality fly fishing 10 minutes from their front door that, you know, either they just haven't topped tapped into or they just haven't thought about it and when you get right down to it um you know these fish are scrappers if you if you scale down your tackle and you know instead of throwing 
you know, five and six weights, you're throwing two and three weights or even a, a soft action four weight. You can have a blast with these fish. They're a lot of fun. Yeah, they, there's a lot of fight per pound, I feel like, in those little fish. I agree. And if I honestly think that if these fish, you know, grew to 10 pounds, nobody would fish for anything else. Oh, I you agree. Know, they, they, <laughs> they'd probably be one of the most popular fish swimming. Uh, speaking of that, um, I was going to get to this later, but we kind of transitioned to it naturally there. Um, where where do you catch trophy panfish or, or how do you catch trophy panfish? Because around me, I don't really see much more than, you know, the size of the palm of my hand. And uh, growing up, I saw, growing up in Pennsylvania, I did see some bigger ones. But um, you see pictures of these just massive bluegill and, and other panfish. Um, where do you catch these things? Where can you find the trophy ones? Well, one of the things about panfish are, you know, when one of the things that they get kind of dissed on by people is the fact that oh they're so easy to catch and you know you can catch them with a with a bear hook at times and there's truth to that i mean if you fish for these guys during you know their pre-spawn or during spawning season um, they are very very easy to catch but one thing to keep in mind is that everything that swims in and let's you know let's take your typical farm pond everything in that farm pond from, from dragonfly larvae to other fish to birds and other animals eat bluegill. I mean, they are a forward species. So for those fish to get large, they have to be doing something different from the, the rank and file. You know, they got to be a little bit different. And that's where the challenge comes in. If you go into, you know, any fly shop or any sports bar and, you know, how many times have you seen these trophy muskies and brown trout and rainbow trout and bass hanging on the wall. How many times can you think in your life that you've seen a, a 13 or 14 inch bluegill hanging up there? These fish exist. They're out there, but they may actually be one of the hardest freshwater trophies to catch, you know, because they didn't get to that size by doing the same thing that, you know, these other bluegills do. And so there is a there is a little bit of a challenge to that. Um, now there are certain parts of the country that grow larger fish, and you know that could be it could be an environmental factor. Where are you located now? You're out in I'm in Colorado, say, Col- right outside Colorado. Denver. Yeah, so you're in an area that now I know there are some areas out there that do have some some decent sized fish. But, you know, certain parts of the country grow bigger fish than, than others. And here in New Jersey, you wouldn't think that, um, you know, we have, we're known for particularly large panfish, but I have caught quite a few fish that, um, you know, creeping up on almost that two pound mark. So, you know, these are, these are big bluegills. They're, they're pretty big. And for the most part, I I don't even consider just the the absolute monsters as being you know a trophy. Basically, anything over the size of my hand, I'm starting to uh, consider a little bit more highly than than what I usually find around here, which is usually around the size of my hand. Um, but back in Pennsylvania, I do remember catching some what I would consider larger you know bluegills. Um, but what what parts of the country are known for the bigger ones? Well, we have, um, obviously, the further south you go, the longer the growing season is. But um, there are some places in the north um, when you get up into, you know, uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin and, you know, some of those up in that lake region up there in the northern part of the country. uh, They're known for some very large uh, panfish as well, sunfish. Um, And it's not just, you know, we keep saying bluegills, but there's there's a whole host of sunfish species that, that kind of fall into that general category of panfish and bluegills are one of the um 
you know, one of those sunfish that reach the, have the, have the ability to reach those larger sizes. You can find, you know, larger fish from, you know, Minnesota all the way down to Florida. But I think as you get further into the South and the Southwest, their, their growing seasons are a little bit longer. So the fish can, you know, they can put on that, that weight a little bit quicker. That, that kind of brings, brings us back to maybe where we should have started, which is what, what do you consider a panfish? Because um, I know, you know, when, when I think of panfish, it's bluegill, basically everything that's shaped like a bluegill. But I know people consider bass panfish as well sometimes. Um, so what do you consider panfish? Yeah, I think uh, different people look at it in different ways. I mean, you know, some folks, you know, use that word pan to just like you did to describe the shape of the fish. Um, you know, sunfish are what we call laterally compressed. So they're, they have these uh, flat, wide bodies and, you know, kind of dish-shaped or pan pan-shaped. Uh, other folks use that word panfish. It's, you know, any small edible fish that, you know, will fit in a pan. And they bluegills and other sunfish certainly fall into that category. For myself, um, I consider, you know, all of the true sunfishes panfish. I'll throw uh, crappie and, you know, rock bass and warmouth into that category as well. And I'll even go outside of the sunfish family and maybe include fish species like uh, yellow perch, white perch. I even uh, maybe even uh, you know fish like white bass, but you know largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, and all the other black basses they are members of the sunfish family. But I I myself don't don't lump them into the uh, panfish category. Yeah, that, I think your definition sounds about like what I've considered panfish. I would definitely consider yellow perch to be one. Um, and I've always heard the same thing that you mentioned, where it's uh, fish that are good for throwing in a pan. <laughs> but yeah, and um, I mean, if you will want to do that, we can. We can start calling, you know, wild brook trout panfish. Right. Uh, you know, they certainly fit in the pan real nice. I mean, but most of the fish I catch would be considered panfish if we're just going by size. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what are some of the differences? Because I, I think it's really easy for people to kind of lump them all together. Um, and I'm definitely guilty of that, too. Uh, I see anything that's shaped like a bluegill, and I assume it's probably going to act very similar to a bluegill, and um, including things like yellow perch. But... Uh, how how distinct are the different species, and and how are they different? For for most part, most of the sunfishes um, behave the same. There is one species um, called the shellcracker or red ear sunfish, and they're found pre- you know predominantly in the south and in, in more southern locales out here. I do have a couple areas up here where they've been you know introduced by landowners, but they're not not a native fish. Uh, not that the uh, current range of the bluegill is their native range as sure. well. I mean, they've been spread to, I think, 49 out of the 50 states. And But the red ear um, or the shellcracker, this is a fish that has really adapted to uh, feeding on uh, crustaceans and mollusks. So they actually have a, you know, a set of teeth back on their tongue for, for breaking up, uh, you know, shellfish and dealing with things like uh, crayfish and stuff. And they do occasionally feed on the surface, but for the most part, they're, they're feeding lower in the water column. So they behave a little bit differently. Um, there's kind of a neat sunfish that looks like a uh, mix between a, a crappie and a, and a bluegill called a flyer. And, you know, they're, they behave a little bit differently. They, once they reach a certain size, they really key in on, um, like aquatic minnows, like like crappie do, and you know they look kind of like a mix between the two. Obviously, many anglers are familiar with with crappie. They consider them, um, you know, sunfish, and you know they feed and behave differently as well. Uh, 
But as far as the most of the true sunfishes, the bluegills, the pumpkin seeds, the red ears, the or excuse me, the um, the red breast, the long ear sunfish. Other than the environments that they live in, they um, what works for one species will generally work for another. You know, they all they all pretty much have the same uh, feeding characteristics, the same diet. So uh, you know, techniques that you're using to catch bluegills will work on you know pumpkin seed sunfish or red breast sunfish, but that the environment that you're targeting these fish may be different. So, uh, do you want to expand a little bit on that? Like, what, where would you be looking for each of these different species? Sure. When you think about sunfish in general, um, you know, they inhabit such a wide range of, of habitat from tidal rivers with brackish water, you know, that, that has, I think they can tolerate salt water as high as like 18%, um, to, all kinds of standing water impoundments like farm ponds and man-made and natural lakes to large man-made reservoirs. And they're also found in a lot of river systems. Um, you know, warm water rivers with uh, slow to moderate current. You'll find um, sunfish species in, in some of these areas. And, you know, some fish are a little bit more current tolerant than others. Um, you know, for, for here in New Jersey, we, a lot of our, you know, wild trout streams um, also contain uh, red breast sunfish, you know, so they, we find them in moving water quite a bit where, um, you know, species like a bluegill or a pumpkin seed, they, they, they'll prefer, uh, or actually do better in, um, in still waters, but it's not uncommon to catch, um, let's say our Delaware river, which is just a, a few minutes from my, my house. Uh, it, it's loaded with all sorts of sunfish species. So um, as long as they're not, they really don't thrive in fast current environments, but you know, slow to moderate flows or someplace where they can get out of the current, you can find them in, in moving water as well as, as still water. And there's, um, you know, natural ranges of these fish. Um, bluegill have been introduced, you know, across the country. Every, every pond that is built, um, they usually get some sort of uh, sunfish bass mix to, uh, They'll keep insect populations down and just to put a, a self-populating uh, fish population in there. So they've been introduced from, from coast to coast, north to south. Um, some of these sunfish had um, smaller natural ranges, but, you know, through man-made stocking um, and, you know, both organized stocking and, you know, bucket biologists, they've been introduced all over the country. So you really never know what's going to turn up in the water. And sometimes it's a little bit difficult to identify what you catch because there is some um, some cross pollination, if you would, that takes place. You know, they, there is some some hybrid fish that may be part pumpkin seed, part bluegill, or part bluegill and green sunfish. So, you know, sometimes you'll catch a fish and you're looking at it and you don't know what you're holding in your hands. Yeah, I've definitely been there, and you see like a couple features from different fish that you you know you're supposed to be able to find on them. I've I've definitely seen the pumpkin seed, uh, like the blue stripes that they have on their face. I've seen mm -hmm. those on fish that don't really look like pumpkin seeds, or the or the you know classic blue gill on something that doesn't really look like a pure blue gill. But I've never actually figured out what it is that I'm holding at that at that moment. Yeah, so so that that happens if um you know if multiple sunfish species were uh, stocked, like for here in New Jersey, um, our native sunfish was was the pumpkin seed that was probably the largest native sunfish we do have a couple interesting little sunfish down in the pine barrens um these fish are very small they're uh banded sunfish or mud sunfish 
And you know, right now, I think all those species are on the uh, endangered list, and they have very small isolated populations because they live in a, in a niche kind of environment down in those pine barrens. But the pumpkin seed was our our native. There were bluegills were not native to New Jersey, and now I think you'd be hard pressed to find a body of water that does not have bluegills swimming in it. You know, so they've been mm. introduced far and wide. Now, do you know why bluegill seems to have been the the chosen fish to just get spread all over the U.S., whereas um, some of the other uh, panfish just aren't as common, or you might find them in one or two little pockets here and there, but not everywhere? Well, you know, they, they all have kind of different characteristics. Some of the sunfish have um, a propensity to overpopulate a little quicker than others. I think pumpkin seeds have that kind of reputation that if they get into a waterway and their populations aren't checked by natural predators or, you know, fishing pressure, they can really, their, their numbers can get out of hand uh, pretty quick. It's my understanding that uh, one of the reasons bluegills, that they can also do the same, but they're not as prone to overpopulation and stunting as some of the other sunfish uh, species. And they're really the, you know, they're, they're the perfect fish when you get right down to it. They're, they're easily caught by anglers. Um, not only are they a, uh, you know, a target species for, for anglers, but they're also a forage species for other larger fish like bass and pike and, you know, musky, walleye, uh, everything eats a bluegill at, at some stage in their life. So, um, you know, there's a bit, that's, I think, the, the main reason that they were distributed, because not only were they a, a targeted species by anglers, but they could also be used as a forage fish. So there's, they're kind of serving a, a double duty there. Sure. Now, what off the top of your head, do you happen to know what some of the native ranges for some of the more popular, you know, like maybe bluegill, perch, um, crappie, like what are the native ranges of, of some of these fish? Well, I, I think with the... Um, if memory serves correct, with the with the bluegill, they were basically from southern Canada to Florida, um, down through um, like the Mississippi River drainage, and then onto the Virginia uh, plains and Piedmont, and then from Virginia south to Florida. The the northeast, um, uh, basically from the like the Great Lakes south down into um, down into Florida, east to Virginia, and west as far as, um, I believe, New Mexico and northern Mexico. Like I oh, think wow. the Rio Grande had a, a bluegill population. So, and through stocking, their, their ranges were expanded um, both east and west. So they got into, you know, the mid-Atlantic and, you know, from now they're, they're found and, and it, I believe they're found in every state of the nation with the exception of Alaska. They're okay. I was wondering what the 50th Hawaii. state was. Yep. Alaska, as far as I know, does not have uh, any bluegill populations, but their range has been expanded far past that. I mean, they're now all through uh, Central and into South America, Indonesia, Japan, uh, South Africa, and in a lot of places they're considered an invasive species. Huh, um, interesting. Out, outside of the United States, uh, Japan being one of them. Uh, you know, they were they were introduced into, into Japan and they were stocked into a, a lot of watersheds along with largemouth bass. And um, they've uh, out kind of outcompeted some local species and, and and put some local species at risk. So their, their range has really been exp- expanded quite a bit. Yeah, I feel like you don't usually think of like a small um, 
prey species like that being the uh, the one that takes over. You think of like pike. You know, pike have come out here to Colorado, and uh, there's a lot of places where they'll pay pay you to uh, to keep pike and get them out of there, or brown trout, or something like some other predatory species. You know, Um, you don't really think of bluegill as being something that's going to uh, wreak havoc on on an ecosystem. (laughs) Well, one of the ways that they can do that is that they're um, they're they're colony nesters. So when you think about how a a fish like like a a, a fish that makes a nest like a largemouth bass or a, a trout making a red in a, in a river. You know, they make these these individual solitary nests where uh, bluegills nest in, and most of the true sunfishes, they nest in colonies. So you won't have um, one fish nesting. You may have several hundred fish nesting over a fairly large area. And if they're sharing that nesting habitat with other fish species, they could very quickly um outcompete those fish. One of the things that's uh, unique about bluegills is that it's the male bluegill, the male sunfish, that will um, scope out the nesting territory, will actually prepare the nest. Once it attracts a female and the eggs are fertilized, the male, the female leaves and it's the male fish that stays behind and guards the nest from predators and will even guard the young once they're hatched for a while. So, and they're, they're pretty aggressive about it. And that's one of the reasons why they're so easy to catch during that time of year. They, I mean, they almost commit suicide because anything that comes close to that nest is going to get attacked. Now, if you, if you figure you had other fish that shared that same kind of spawning habitat, nobody's getting any spawning done if there's, uh, you know, a colony of bluegills nearby. <laughs> so that's one way that they could actually negative impact a, uh, a native species. Sure, that Just makes by sense. competition for for spawning habitat. Now, are there? Do you know if there are any sort of uh, like ethical uh, conundrums that people face with fishing for spawning bluegill? Like there is with you know you know the whole like do not fish reds when when trout are spawning like browns in the fall. Um, is is there any sort of similar thing for panfish, or do people just say go catch them? You know, it's it's probably the opposite. Maybe there should be, um, but I think there's a, there's a whole big portion of the angling public that that's the only time that they target these fish because they are so easy to catch. You know, if you're looking for a challenge, you know, try catching a big bluegill in the dog days of summer or, you know, just after ice out or during the fall, you know, these fish can be a real challenge to catch at times in the spring. They're not, you know, in the spring, you could literally animate a a plain old hook with nothing on it and and place fish to, to strike. You know, where the real ethical concern is, is, you know, it's it's those large male fish that are important to the population. And those are exactly the fish that everybody seems to want to take home. Like like most species, you know, everybody likes to take home the largest that they can catch. And, and most sunfish make um, their excellent table fare. They, they're... Uh, they're great eating, and in many places, their populations could sustain you know, selective harvest with, with no ill effects on the overall fish population. But it's those large males that really need protection. And there's a lot of states, um, I think I mentioned before, uh, you know, Minnesota and, and um, Wisconsin, and a lot of these northern states where it takes a long time for a mature male bluegill to reach you know, a length over, say, eight inches. Some of these 10-inch fish may be, you know, 10 or more years old. And, you know, th- that's the portion of the population that can be, that really needs to be protected. And when a lot of those large male fish are taken out of, 
you know, taken out of the ecosystem. Their, you know, their, their genes are not being passed on. Um, the smaller sunfish, there's, uh, they, they do have a tendency to, the larger the fish is, the, the better it's going to do as far as, uh, you know, protecting that nest during spawning and, you know, warding off threats to the nest where the smaller fish aren't that successful. And, you know, it can negatively impact uh, overall populations. And, and I think that's really the big concern There's with, with anglers just taking a lot of these large male fish out of the population. There's, and in a lot of places, they can just, like I said, there's selective harvest. You can, you can collect more than your share of these fish to enjoy a meal or two, but you're better off taking those fish that are under eight inches in length and you know releasing those larger fish just to keep those those good genes going okay so it's it's less about targeting them while they're on their beds and more about uh just keeping the big ones um that that's yeah, where the, think, the issue comes in i actually think that there's most of that bed fishing is what most people equate with pan fishing you know especially with a fly rod you know that's that's what everybody waits for you know they're waiting for those fish to get on the bed so you know they can enjoy some some easy fishing mm-hmm. so do all the pan fish well I, I assume probably not but um is there a similar time of year i know that uh bluegills at least are kind of spring early summer right um for spawning oh, for spawning spawning yeah. yeah they um within a couple degrees they all spawn fairly um close to one another probably the crappie spawn a little bit earlier they're a little uh, more tolerant to cooler water, they sp- they uh, they'll spawn in water that's a little bit cooler than um, the other sunfish species. And from species to species, there may be a, a five degree difference in preference to water temperature. But you know, once that water is is getting up to where in most parts of the country we're in that um, mid spring time frame, and again, that mid spring could be. You know, spawning conditions in, in the deep south could be February, March. Here in New Jersey, it's uh, end of April into May. And when you get up into the northern tier states, you know, you're looking at June and July. So it's, it's really when you, when you get into that kind of late spring, early summer type uh, water temps is when you'll start to see those, those fish spawning. Okay. And is there anything else notable throughout the year um, with people targeting them? You know, once the spawn ends, uh, how does the rest of the year kind of cycle through when it comes to tactics sure. and things for targeting um, them? So early in the season, uh, before spawning season, this really the same thing will apply for, for very late season. Um, most panfish are fish of the shallows. You know, they, they're, they're usually found in relatively shallow water, although um, you can find them deeper at times. But um, they're fish that really orient strongly to shoreline cover. Um, they're, for the most part, a shallow water fish. They, they spawn in shallow water. So early spring is when um, you know, they start to enter the shallows. But panfish feed or sunfish, you know, they feed year-round. If, if anyone's ever done any ice fishing, one of the most popular fish targeted through the ice are you know bluegill and crappie. And you know, so they do, they do feed year-round. And... It's not impossible. I start fishing for them if I have, you know, the time and, you know, we get a couple of days of stable weather, you know, right after ice out. I've caught them as early in years that we've had some, uh, where we don't get a lot of ice here. You know, I've caught them in February 
from from the bank. What will typically happen in colder water is that they'll they'll retreat from the shallows. They they get out to deeper, more stable, and that's really what they're seeking. They're just seeking stable conditions, stable temperatures. Um, so they'll they'll kind of get away from the shallows. They'll school up uh, a lot of times by year class, and they'll. They'll move out into deeper water. And if you can fish a relatively small body of water where you can access some of that deeper water from, from the shoreline, if you're fishing from shore or, you know, from some sort of watercraft, you can, you can usually catch these fish, you know, year round. As we get into spring, as the water begins to warm up, They'll start making, you know, short forays into the shallows. Uh, the dark mud bottom flats usually warm up quicker and, you know, the fish will start to push into those areas. If you have a couple warm, stable days and if the water turns, excuse me, if the weather turns sour again, they'll just kind of retreat back to deeper water until conditions begin to stabilize where they move into the shallows. Pre-spawn, when the fish are, are looking for nesting sites and, you know, the larger males start to come into the shallows, prepare their nest. Fishing, that's when the fishing really begins to get good. Um, you can you can target fish pretty reliably from you know early spring to right after the fall, right after the spawn. Once the fish are done spawning, they once again will kind of retreat to a little bit deeper water. Those those larger male fish will definitely they often leave the shallows and they'll they'll, they'll get out of the shallows and you know head off to some some deeper structure. When we get into those really dog days of summer, though the water that's real shallow kind of gets a little bit too warm for them. So they, they may come into those areas early in the morning or late in the evening to feed and then, you know, seek out, um, water that's a little bit deeper that has uh, protection in the form of vegetation, you know, lily pads or weed beds, fallen trees, things of that nature. And really when we get into those, Midsummer days, your real best time to fish is like with most other fish is the fish are early in the morning or late in the evening. And you'll find that, you know, the fishing usually improves as opposed to, you know, throwing flies out there in the middle of a bluebird sky, bright sun, you know, really hot. Uh, it, you can sometimes feel like there's not a fish in a lake, but then as soon as that sun gets behind the hills and things begin to cool off a little bit, the lake just comes alive. When we get into fall, uh, the fish again will, 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 they'll be in those shallows. Um, as the water cools down, they'll move back into the shallows. But then at some point, things are going to get a little too cold for them and they're going to push deeper again. And really they're, they're catchable year round. It's just, you have to change your, your tactics. Everybody, uh, all the sunfish are very avid feeders on the surface. You know, they, they love to feed off the surface where, you know, for a fly, Fly fisher, that's the perfect fish, you know, a fish that'll eat a dry fly on a regular basis. But, you know, when we get into some of these um, tougher seasons, you have to change your tactics. So uh, one of my favorite ways to uh, pursue cold water panfish are with, you know, wet flies, soft tackles, just fish very deep and very, very slowly. It, it really gets kind of technical for these, for these cold water fish. So, yeah, I've, I've taken uh, quite a few panfish on the surface. Um, although I don't see them rise too often when I'm not fishing for them on the surface. Uh, and maybe that's just the, the area that I happen to fish in. Um, but I see them, 
you know, they'll, my fly lands, they're immediately up on it, but then I'm not seeing them coming to the surface in between those casts, you know? I don't know if there's just and, not anything available for them on the surface or what? That's, that's, that's what it is. Um, you know, when we, when we fly fish for trout in the middle of the hatch, there's a tremendous amount of food on the surface of the water. So that's why we see fish rising all over the place. Um, think about trout fishing during a time when there's no hatch present. You don't see a lot of fish sure, rising sure. there either. And, you know, the panfish are very opportunistic feeders where there are certainly um, aquatic insects that emerge like in a trout stream. And if you happen to be um, on the water at that time, you will see that same activity. You'll see, you know, dimples from, from shore to shore from these fish feeding. But they also um, they rely heavily on terrestrial type insects, um, everything from you know dragonflies and damselflies to moths and, and ants and beetles and all the things that you know your all the terrestrials that are in your trout box will work on a on a bluegill pond. And most of these ponds are ringed with vegetation, either you know, tall grasses or trees, and, and bugs are constantly falling off into the water so there's a there's a pretty regular supply of food that ends up on the surface of the water so they they're always looking up for a meal but it's true to unless there is some sort of active hatch going on you're not going to see those those rising fish mm -hmm. all over the place so that's that's probably a pretty good segue into um, some of the flies that you might throw for panfish. And I know I feel like what's nice about fishing for them is they're not as selective as trout. Um, I often will, you know, when I'm tying flies and one doesn't turn out very well, I'm like, I'll just throw that for for bluegill. You know, I don't, I don't have to Absolutely. throw it out. Um, but what are some of your favorite flies for panfish specifically? Well, for you hit on a good point that one of the things that make these fish so special is that they're not overly selective most of the time. There are times that you know they can, you know, make you nuts, and you know we're talking about these these shoulder seasons, you know, early 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 spring, late winter, um, or through the fall, or even sometimes in the middle of the summer, um, they seem to develop a case of lockjaw. But you know, by and large, they're they're pretty forgiving fish. Um, and that's one of the things that makes them so special is that they're a, a fish that, again, they're, they, they don't care about your ugly flies. Um, and a lot of cases, they don't care about your ugly casts either. So that they're the absolute perfect fish for a beginner. And we'll talk, I really want to touch on that at some point. So we'll, we'll come back to that. But as far as flies go, um, like most anglers, I love to take panfish off the surface. So, um, you know, dry flies or, or floating flies of some sort are at the top of the list when, you know, conditions warrant. And so anything from foam bugs to uh, small poppers to, uh, you know, some, I, I tie some, some pretty neat little deer hair patterns for them. And even those flies that are in your, you know, just about every trout fly that you have, dry fly that's in your trout boxes will work on these fish. They're, they're not particularly, uh, picky when it, if it looks like food they're, they're going to try and eat it and if they can fit it in their mouth they're, they're gonna now, one of the things that are unique about these fish is they do have fairly small mouths so um you do have to kind of consider that when it comes uh to your fly sizes but i think any bass angler will tell you you know that they're, they're always amazed when you know they hook a bluegill on a uh a fly meant for 
or bass or pike. I mean, I've, I've caught big bluegill on pike flies while, while pike fishing. You know, it's amazing that they can get a, uh, you know, one odd or two odd hook in their mouth, but somehow they manage to do it, you know? So it's, uh, if they want it bad enough, they'll find a way to eat it. <laughs> yeah. So, that- you know, Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I've noticed that um, I, I actually prefer trying to size down a little bit for them because if I'm if I'm trying not to keep a fish, uh, I don't want to have to get my hemostats down in the mouth because it's, it's sometimes hard to get out because they'll suck it down in there. Um, so I often fish barbless and uh, smaller flies than necessary when I'm trying to release panfish because I don't want to have to get a, a fly that's taking up the entire mouth out right. <laughs> with, with my hemostats. And I, I kind of go to the opposite end of the spectrum where I'll fish um, larger flies. Because one of the neat things about fishing for panfish is um, they share their waters with a lot of other interesting fish. That's um, true, yeah. You know, fish like largemouth bass and pickerel and smallmouth and pike. And, you know, the I actually prefer to fish flies that may be a little bit larger than what most people will fish. And... By and how that works is it kind of discourages some of those smaller fish. So maybe you're 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 getting less action, but when when you do get a take, it's usually a fish that feels it's capable of, of taking down that larger meal. Plus those those larger offerings, they they'll attract the attention of uh, predator species like bass or pickerel or pike. And um, there's it's always a mixed bag, you know, fishing locally if. If when I'm out for an evening of throwing bugs for for bluegills in in spring or early summer, there's always a largemouth bass or two that comes you know comes out to play or uh, you know a good sized chain pickerel or a small pike, um, and that's that kind of adds to the excitement. So you know you you really don't know when that uh, when that fly goes down what's on the other end of it. I had an experience about two years ago with a a fish that sipped the fly as gently as could be off the surface and it, it was just a, a small cork popper nothing nothing special but that fly disappeared like it was just being you know dragged down by a tiny bluegill and when i set the hook it was almost a seven pound largemouth on oh the wow yeah, <laughs> i'm sure that was, was a and, surprise <laughs> yeah and it was just um of course it was a lot of fun on a four weight but when the fish finally came to hand i, I was just blown away that it took that fly so gently you know, without any disturbance on the water, basically just sip it like a trap sipping a spinner off the surface. And, uh, you know, normally big bass, it's, they normally are not interested in flies like that. And when a fish that size takes takes an insect or a fly off the surface, it's usually with quite a bit of commotion. So that that's pretty cool when something like that happens. Yeah, you always wonder how they even physically do that. I feel like just by opening their mouth, usually there's a big kind of bucket, you know, of water exactly. that just disappears. Exactly. You would think that, you know, and, and that's what really blew my mind, either from my angle, I wasn't seeing things properly, or maybe I wasn't paying attention. But, you know, the way I remember the event, it was just, I, I set the hook on what I thought was a, you know, a little pesky fish that was just, because that'll happen sometimes. These smaller fish won't be able to take that, that larger size six popper down, but what they can do is grab a rubber leg and start dragging it around, you know, and that's, that's kind of how I remember things going down. And when I just kind of really wasn't even setting a hook, I was just picking up to, to lay down somewhere else. And when I went to uh, pick up that fly, the rod just bent double, you know, so it was, uh, it was pretty cool. 
Yeah, that's something I've noticed. Uh, often I'll fish like a small a small woolly bugger in those areas that have uh, bluegill and bass, thinking that you know I'll pick up a small bass or a larger bluegill. And a lot of times I get uh, just a lot of nibbles. The whole you know I'm, I'm stripping it back in, and I just feel fish. Uh, bumping it, and I assume it's just a lot of small fish that can't really fit it in their mouths, but they're trying. It could be. It could be. And, you know, sometimes, too, um, you know, so that's the, the top water flies, but again, like most fish, they do the vast majority of their feeding underneath the surface of the water, you know, just like a trout. And so subsurface flies are usually more effective, and a lot of folks don't really spend a lot of time targeting these fish with, um, you know, subsurface flies. I mentioned earlier that I think, uh, you know, wet flies are probably my, my hands down favorite, uh, whether they're soft tackles or uh, traditional uh, winged uh, wet flies. I have a, a real large variety of different wet patterns that I uh, will fish, as well as uh, small nymph patterns. Basically, again, any nymph in your trout boxes will work on these guys. But if you're if you're looking to match the hat, so to speak, uh, dragonfly and damselfly larvae um, are are always present, and you know they're an important food source for these fish. So I'll I'll fish a lot of damsel and dragonfly nymphs, um, and even when you come into um, you know the larger fish will feed on on other fish. Uh, so small streamers, uh, you mentioned woolly buggers earlier, but um, I have a, a large variety of you know, small streamers. And by small, we're, we're talking a size 12 up to about a size six um, with, with maybe, you know, an eight or a 10 being in the sweet spot. So real, so it runs the gamut, everything from streamers to dry flies um, you know, that you can, you can catch panfish on. And sometimes some of those unusual methods, such as um, a slowly fished wet fly or a, um, you know, a small streamer, that may be the ticket to catching those those larger specimens. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and like you said, kind of weed out some of the smaller ones, because I feel like one of the keys to catching the larger ones has to be just keeping the small ones off your line long enough to, to give the bigger ones a chance to get to it. Because, you know, you're often casting into an area that has a whole bunch of them, and, and you'll get the first one that sees it. <laughs> and that's very true. And that's where, you know, these larger fish don't necessarily, outside of the spawning season, they're not occupying the same water. So if you are catching nothing but smaller fish, it's probably all you are going to catch. Okay, good to know. Um, yeah. yeah, those larger fish will will tend to, um, once the spawn is done, um, they will tend to move off and they'll seek other types of structure. Uh, they're, they're not necessarily just littering the shallows like the, uh, the smaller fish do. Uh, they may be seeking out um, subsurface structure like rock piles or drop-offs or uh, maybe they're getting back into uh, fallen trees that are along banks or submerged timber. So when I'm looking to, to target these, um, these bigger fish, that's what I look to do. I get away from the shore and I start looking for a uh, you know, structure further away from the bank, uh, such as weed beds. And, you know, usually then it requires, you know, some sort of watercraft because when you're fishing from shore, you're usually going to be limited to yourself to those uh, those smaller fish that are just, you know, all over the shallows. Now, I know you mentioned earlier that uh, a two or three weight is usually your preferred, maybe up to a four weight. Um, is that is that pretty standard? Uh, use a floating line, I assume, for most of these? 
yeah, I, I mean, I use a floating line for about 95% of my fishing. Early and late in the season, I do use uh, intermediate and, and sinking lines to get the flies down for the fish because they will be holding in, in, in deeper water. And to be honest with you, my favorite rod for panfish is a, uh, you know, a, a moderate action or a, a, a soft action, like a mid-flex or full-flex uh, four-weight. Uh, the, I think a four-weight gives me the ability to throw those larger flies a little bit easier, those little bit more wind-resistant panfish poppers. Although I do a lot of fishing with the lighter rods, the twos and the three-weights. But if I had to limit myself to one rod, I would either take a, uh, you know, one of a modern glass four weight or a, um, you know, a rod that was uh, manufactured along the lines of like a Orbis Superfine or something like that. A rod that's a, a little bit more of a slower action rod in, in a four weight, I think would be my go-to, but um, any rods two to two to four are perfect for these fish. And there's certain times a year that um, uh, the, the five weight even comes into play where, you know, I'm either dealing with windier conditions or, or maybe I'm throwing small streamers or I'm fishing those intermediate or sinking lines. It's very difficult to find a, you know, a full sink or a full intermediate line in a four weight. Usually a five weight is where you start to see those lines okay. coming into play. And how about your leader? Are you doing a basically match the fly? Um with the leader? Yeah, just like every other, you know, fly fishing type experience, you're, you know, it's a tapered leader. I know a lot of anglers will just, you know, throw a piece of mono on the end of their, uh, you know, fly line and call it done. But I fish tapered leaders. I actually design a lot of my own leaders um, based on what type of flies I'm fishing. You know, maybe a leader that turns over larger, more wind resistant flies like uh, foam bugs and poppers. I have a couple leader formulas that I tie up for, uh, those types of patterns. Um, I will fish straight fluorocarbon leaders, you know, short sections of four feet or so off of sinking and intermediate lines when I'm presenting flies deeply. And, you know, even in the winter months, um, we do get, at least in my area, we get a lot of these fish feeding on midges. So these may be small surface midges that, you know, adults on the surface or larva and pupa and, and we're talking the same kind of small stuff that trout eat so that would be a totally different leader setup as well so that's a longer finer lighter leader sure okay now um i know you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that you wanted to come back to it but uh you, you mentioned that panfish are a great way for people to get started i know it sounds like you kind of got started a lot on panfish you know um being in the area but uh do you just want to kind of expand on that and and why they're such a sure. great great species to target on for a beginner yeah yeah absolutely um so over the years i've done a lot of instruction um and in the last uh, you know since retiring from my uh my main career six years ago i have I've basically you know become a you know fly fishing and fly tying instructor that's what i'm doing in my free time these days and the I think the easiest way to get somebody into fly fishing is to introduce them to uh, to panfish, to sunfish in, in particular. Um, these fish are are very easy to catch. They're they're like I said earlier, they're forgiving of poor presentations. One of the hardest things to do as a um, you know, as a fly fishing guide is taking an angler that has never fly fished before, putting a fly rod in their hands, taking them out onto a trout stream and getting them into fish it could be a challenge i mean trout can be 
pretty tough sometimes, even for those of us that have been doing it for 40 years. You know, there's still many days like I'm walking away from the stream, scratching my head, wondering what the hell I did wrong that day. I can honestly say that's never happened on my local bluegill pond, right? I can get a, a novice angler into fish almost every single time, no matter how bad of a caster they are, how poor their presentation is, we can usually find a fish to cooperate. And just like anything else in life, the more you do something, the better you get at it. And go back to your own uh, fly fishing uh, learning curve. How long was it from the time that you first picked up the fly rod to where you were catching fish on a, on a regular basis? Oh, I don't know. Probably at least seven straight days of fishing where before I felt like I um, quote unquote knew what I was doing instead of just trusting what someone else had told me, I guess. Right. So there's, and for, for some anglers, it's seven or eight weeks, seven or eight months. I, I've taken folks out on the river that, you know, finally decided to uh, lay out money for, for a guide that had been fly fishing for two years and haven't caught a fish yet, you know, and so, and that's what fly fishing can, trout can do sometimes to a beginning angler, but to take somebody and, um, bring them out for, you know, for example, for, um, you know, the work that we do in, in Orvis, they have a fly fishing 101 class, which is a, a basic introduction to fly fishing. And then there's a 201 level class where we take those 101 students and we take them out. We don't take them out to a trout stream. We take them out to a local bluegill pond. And every one of those students ends up catching one or more fish. And, you know, you learn you how to fight fish. You learn how to set the hook better because you're, you're actually doing it. it you, it's not just working off a theory, like you said, something that somebody told you, you're doing it firsthand. So you, you, you just learn quicker. For sure. And, and trout, like from my experience, at least trout, uh, the reason I feel like I picked it up a little uh, quicker is that I was doing it all day, every day. Like I, I kind of jumped in and immersed myself into it. Um, but I know that without having that streak of being able to go out all the time, um, it would have taken a lot longer. And I, I do know people who have taken years to really get confident in what they're doing, just because if you only get to go out once or twice, then you're throwing the rod in the corner for a month or two, you kind of forget what you're, what you're doing. But I feel like for panfish, you can kind of come back to it and, and pick right up where you left, because like you said, the fish tend to cooperate a little, a little bit more. Um, so you can practice casting in your yard in the meantime, and you come back and, and they're ready to play. Uh, but you've gotten better in the meantime, casting in your yard or, or looking at new flies or things like that. Or even just casting to these fish that are you know, five minutes from your front sure, door. Sure. Again, the more, more you do something, the better you get at it. And there are so many anglers that fly fishing for them is a, you know, a semi-annual trip to the mountains or uh, a vacation to an area that has, has trout. And they're not picking up that fly rod. That's why it takes somebody a couple of years to get proficient because they're only doing it a couple times a year where if, you know, these fish are there, they're in your backyard, they're, they're willing, they're great teachers. And that's the main reason that, you know, I started that Panfish on the Fly website was to um, get folks interested in these fish that are right there in their backyard and to kind of pull the curtain back a little bit in, in the fly fishing world that it's not just the, uh, the glamorous species like 
trout and salmon and steelhead and the saltwater fish, you know, bonefish and tarpon and whatnot. There was a lot of other fish out there that are uh, more than willing to, to eat your flies. For sure. I, I this is the last thing I wanted to touch on um, is are there any you know I when I think of conservation organizations for fish I'm thinking of like Trout Unlimited, uh, Bonefish Tarpon Trust like like you said kind of the the glamorous species but um, are there any specific to panfish conservation organizations? Not that I know of, but again you know my particular region that um, that I'm in is not necessarily uh, you know known. For, for panfish are some parts of the country that are so I, I imagine there may be some sort of localized conservation groups um, but nothing that I know of on a national scale like trout unlimited um, you know I've been involved in trout unlimited for for many many years uh, president of our local chapter um, so I'm, I'm not aware of a, a group that's actually targeting these fish because I don't think they're facing the same kind of threats you know, our, our cold water species like trout and salmon, um, they, they have a lot of threats out there to their to their environment. And of course, uh, that adversely affects the fishing where, where these fish are, are pretty hardy and they're in a much different place. You know, they're far more widespread than, than trout and salmon and they can live in a much larger um, variety of habitats. So they, they're not really stuck in that niche of, you know, cold, clean water. They, they can tolerate a wide range of conditions. So I don't think they face the same threats. That's kind of good to hear, though. You know, it, it's good to hear that there's not that many conservation organizations around that because they don't really need it, you know? <laughs> Can't well, say that I, about I many things. Think, <laughs> yeah, I do think that there is some some conservation efforts that need to take place. Um, you know, just, again, educating folks about the importance of those larger male fish um, and, and how removing them from the ecosystem could could negatively impact you know the overall fish populations i don't think that's something that is is widely known i know um, as as the years have gone on i've heard uh, you know i've heard more and more conversations and and read more and more articles and magazines and whatnot about that issue so um, you know hopefully over time more folks will will get that message and uh it's one of those fish that you can, you know, you can you can take a couple home guilt free and enjoy a, a fresh meal of uh, local fish, but um, you, know, you still have to be conscious of what's going on in the environment. For sure, and I guess I guess that just maybe think of one more thing. Uh, how can you tell a male from a female? Are you, are you just going off the fact that the male is the one guard, the large male is the one guarding the nest if you're if you're fishing for them on their nests, or how can you tell the difference? So it kind of varies from species to species, but um, there's definitely some. You know some telltale signs usually like with most species the males will be more more brightly colored um than than the females um you may see some different body shapes um between between the two and you know i know scientifically there's there's a number of ways of, of doing that as well um for me it's just been an experience thing of you know handling so many of these fish it's it's pretty easy to tell right off the bat which what you have in your hands but if you have have those larger, um, the males, you know, predominantly grow a little bit larger, and they are, uh, you know, a lot more brightly colored than the females. And if you're fishing during the spawning season, chances are that's what you're catching, because those are the fish again that are guarding the nests, and you know they're they're aggressively taking anything that that comes their way. Okay, perfect. So you're mo- most likely catching the male fish. 
Well, um, do you just want to finish up by sharing uh, where people can find you if they're looking to visit your website or find you on social media or anything like that? Sure, absolutely. Um, so I have a website. Um, it's called Panfish on the Fly. And um, there's, a, there's a ton of information on the site about uh, warm water fly fishing. And not only for panfish, but some of those other species you may encounter uh, while panfishing. Um, there's also a Facebook page by the same name and a Facebook group by the same name, Panfish on the Fly. And uh, that Facebook group is, like I said, we are probably within the next week or two gonna gonna top the 10,000 member mark. So that's uh, that's pretty exciting. Um, I'm also on Instagram, uh, Twitter um, by the same by the same name, Panfish on the Fly. Uh, I think on it's gonna be. Uh, at panfish on the fly with underscores in between the uh, each word for for the uh, Instagram account. Okay, and, and I'll definitely I know you shared those links with me, so I'll, I'll share those in the show notes as well. Um, but it, it sounds like it's not too hard to find you. <laughs> no, nope, no, nope, panfish on the fly is going to send you my way. <laughs> All right, well, Bart, I can't thank you enough for coming on. This was super informative, and uh, you made me excited for springtime to get out on my local pond. So uh, thank you for that as well. Very good, Katie. I've, I've enjoyed it a lot. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Um, Remember to head over to the website fishuntamed.com for all episodes, show notes, blog posts, everything else. Uh, If you've got a minute or two, leave a rating or review on iTunes. And if you're looking for me on social media, you can find me at fishuntamed on Instagram or under my name, Katie Burgert on Go Wild. And that's all for this week, but I'll be back here in two weeks and I'll see you guys then. Bye, everybody.